I was doing some personal practice in Burma, and I went to my um, preceptor, Sayadaw Upandita, whom I was reporting to during that time, and I entered the interview room to give my report. And before I even got to the place where I took my position to uh, take my three bows before him, he posed to me this question. What is equanimity, he said. He asked, what is equanimity? Which connotes balance, of course, and I'll speak about that in another uh, Dharma talk. So after I took my place and completed the three bows, I gave him my answer in short, that equanimity is a spacious balance that is devoid of reactivity. And that was a good enough answer, so he usually, you know, a response from him like, hmm, is pretty okay. (laughs) So... (laughs) But he was, he was really after something else in my, re, in, in my estimation. I thought, he's not really wanting to go into equanimity. He wants to present something else in this whole interaction with him. So he said, equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindful awareness. Behind that lead horse is the first pair of horses, faith and wisdom. And behind that pair of horses is the second pair, concentration and energy. When faith and wisdom are in balance and concentration and energy are in balance, the lead horse, which is mindful awareness, has little work. So I was really interested in that because, of course, you know, as all of us in our practice, we have a struggle with being mindfully aware moment to moment. And I really wanted to know, what are these uh, balancing factors? Or Sometimes they're called the five spiritual faculties, the five spiritual faculties, which are the balancing powers of our practice that make mindfulness so strong and effortless. And so he said, then when mindfulness um, and awareness is effortless, it smoothly and powerfully goes towards liberation. The liberating freeing of the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion. And I like to refer to this path more as a path of purification, rather than looking at at it as going towards some kind of enlightenment. Because really on the path, what we discover as we go along is the mind and heart is more and more liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion. There is a palpable freeing of that in the mind and the heart. So this talk tonight is about those five cardinal virtues of um, faith and wisdom, concentration and energy, and mindfulness itself. It's kind of um, a theoretical talk, so what you need to do is really make it pertain to your own experience and see where you're at with each of these qualities in your own practice. 
Sometimes it's hard to understand it on an intellectual level or a theoretical level like this. And anything that you don't understand, just let it come in and at at the right time, your practice will reveal what that really means, your actual practice. So a lot of times I've heard these, you know, the four of this, the five of that, the seven of this, etc. And I have no idea in the past, what do these really mean? But if you can just let it in instead of giving up in the beginning (laughs) and and just let it be in the back burner of your heart-mind, when the right time comes, you'll realize, oh, I have experienced that in my practice. And you can kind of lay it down in a way that um, your faith can take it in and, and not just your theoretical understanding. So all of these are active powers in and of themselves when we, when we realize them in our practice and even when we maybe consider them as we hear it in theoretical terms. They become stronger as practice gains momentum. And I think all of us have uh, tried to let you know bit by bit through our uh, connections with you and the groups that really what's important is the continuity of your practice. Sometimes we feel that we're losing um, mindfulness sometime in, in our practice for short times or for longer times. But if we can start again, that means that we have some continuity. So each of these has their own specific function to perform and actually harmonizes their function with the other factors that uh, I laid out. What is needed in our practice is this ability for clear comprehension. And when all of those factors are in balance, they produce that ability to see things clearly, to see things as they really are. So I'd like to read to you something from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi who talks about these five spiritual faculties and um, just uh, quoting him uh, some things I've left out to because it's quite long but it gets to the point with these, these words. These qualities are of humble origin appearing initially in mundane roles in the course of our everyday life. In these humble guises, they manifest as trustful faith or confidence. This is one of the values. In, high, in having trust and confidence in the fact that we can go more deeply in our understanding. Um, they are guised and manifest sometimes as an effort, a a continuous effort towards the good. They manifest as attentive awareness, not just kind of willy-nilly, but an, an intentional awareness towards whatever is being known in the moment. And there is this very um, streamlined concentration that goes into every moment. And then the last one, the fifth one, is this intelligent understanding or wisdom. It results in that high-quality wisdom that actually begins to release the heart bit by bit of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so this is the ultimate goal of the practice, 
And when that happens, the heart becomes really clear. Wisdom becomes really perceptive and operable, operative in our life. And so we live in a way that brings more ease to ourselves and to others. So all of these together corral the potential of many other supportive factors and faculties inherent in the mind stream. So at first they can seem quite, you know, mundane, but after a while they go towards the super mundane and really um, reveal what is necessary to bring us to a, a sense of inner liberation where we're no longer tormented by the hindrances that uh, Steve spoke about last night and that come in many iterations of those five hindrances. So these qualities uh, direct the the mind towards a possibility of deeper understanding. So this balance is essential for not only our basic peace and happiness, but for ultimate peace and happiness the kind of peace and happiness that does not depend on the conditions of this life. So in our deepening calm and stability of life, it really goes through these practices and this balance, it goes towards that liberation, which is really the final destination of our practice here. So... Um, The Buddha points out that neither he nor anyone else can bestow these upon us. They are inherent qualities within us, waiting to be nurtured, waiting to be practiced and fully developed. We nurture their growth by the continuity of our practice. So one of the things that Manindra, one of my teachers, my first teacher, and continued to be until his death, um, he explained to me once when I was, I took him to the ocean where I live on Maui, and I had my three children with me. And um, he asked me in the, when we were sitting down there in the ocean, he said, you know, a while ago you were walking on, on the ocean with your three children, and um, this is like mindfulness says you have beautiful children, they're following you along. And what happens with mindfulness too is because of mindfulness, all the beautiful qualities will follow along. He had a, a really beautiful way of telling stories about and, and kind of presenting these beautiful qualities of mind and also the, the hindrances and all the other qualities that kind of hinder us from seeing clearly. So he said, when mindfulness is there, all the other beautiful qualities of mind will follow. And so I really took that in and um, understood it really experientially as I continued on in my path. So another uh, grouping of words by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Those of you who may not know him, he's a American who lived in Sri Lanka for a long time, and he was a Buddhist monk, still is, he's still living today. He edited many uh, great works 
of the suttas, translated them into English, and is responsible for some of the beautiful volumes of the Buddhist teachings that we have these days. So he said something that was very compelling that I want to repeat to you. He said, Left to itself, without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself. Habitual forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare. And under their dominion, we're not, under our, we're not our own masters, but passive pawns, driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct that promise fulfillment but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our appetites, and this is accomplished precisely by the development of the five spiritual faculties. So this is a Dharma talk that is extremely important in the Dharma. It's really an understanding of how you can understand each one and see if you can bring these to balance in your practice. So it's actually very practical to take it in and see if we can apply these to our own practice. So tonight, let's look at each factor uh, one at a time and see how one naturally is a cause and condition for the next one to arise and then later to give more attention to the balancing of them. And also I want to give more attention to uh, one or two of them than to the others this evening. So first we'll start with faith. Faith, or sometimes we can call it confidence, um, we need that in order to actually start on our path. Now all of us have some measure of faith or else we wouldn't be here. We have some measure of faith in the ability for ourselves to understand something of what we're learning here in practice and seeing what comes out in our own application of, of this uh, training to ourselves if we're willing to apply it, do the best we can, and actually take the steps that we need to take to understand it experientially. So there's faith in ourselves, faith in the Dharma, uh, faith in our teachers. These are the three different kinds of faith that we can have. When we can have enough faith in ourselves, then we can take uh, that faith and put forth the energy into actually carrying it out in our practice. This degree of confidence gives us um, the energy to actually put effort into what we're doing here. And so sometimes, of course, you know, we give up on ourselves, and this is part of our practice, part of our experience. We think we can't do it any longer, but we just give ourselves a break, and we start again. Beginning again means that, okay, we lost faith for a little while, but we can muster up enough to begin again. So this is the right direction in our practice that we can take. It's not the energy of like a big push or striving. It's more a relaxed, sustainable kind of energy 
So check in on, checking in ourselves to see, is this what I'm doing now in our practice, in my practice, is this sustainable? Or am I pushing too hard? Or maybe not enough that I'm, I'm just going to um, kind of give up on myself. So see where you are in your practice here. So we're aiming for continuity of relaxed, sustainable energy here. So with that, we can bring mindful awareness on the changing experiences of our practice. So this brings us to the ability to be mindful. When we have faith, enough faith that we can put energy and effort into our practice, into our moment-to-moment awareness here. So what this moment-to-moment awareness brings about is this stability of mind, and which is concentration. And this um, energy of mindful awareness that we put on changing objects with continuity produces this stability of mind that we call concentration. So these are four of the five faculties. So what happens is that there is, with this kind of concentration, there's a deepening and powerful new view of what's going on in our lives, moment to moment, at a deeper level. Not just at the conceptual level, but a level that we can see more deeply than concepts. So we come to understand, for example, the Four Noble Truths, which um, will... Uh, fill out uh, more later, where there is this no resistance or not ignoring or avoiding or seeing the truth of suffering. So we, we begin to open to the first noble truth, the truth of the fact of suffering. We open to the truth of that there is a cause, and we see that cause, that clinging, that craving, that holding on, we see that there is an end to that suffering. There can be an end if we keep going in our practice moment to moment. And that there is a path to the end of suffering. So these are the four noble truths that we begin to open to. And we can't do that without faith to put into our effort or energy, to put into awareness moment to moment, which is a cause and condition for stability of mind to arise, and that is a cause and condition for wisdom to arise. So we can see how one thing can lead to another, beginning with faith, which is so important in our practice. So I'd like to talk about faith first. There was one time when I first went to um, Burma to ordain as a nun. So I ordained temporarily. You can ordain for life or temporarily as as both um, Deborah and I did. Deborah for a year, but this time I went, I ordained for two months. And so I went to my teacher, to our teacher, preceptor, Sedao Upandita, and um, he said, why are you here? That was the first question he asked me. And I said, well, I'm here to continue to purify my heart and, and mind. 
heart and mind are the same thing in the Dharma. And so I had practiced with him several times before in the U.S. and abroad, and this time I went to Burma. And so he had um, an unusual response to that when I said I came here to continue to purify my heart and mind. And he said, then you must invest everything you have in your practice. And at first I was a little bit stunned that he used that word invest. And I realized quickly that what he meant was to really look into my heart and see what qualities had already been developed within me that I could pour into my practice, that I could invest in my practice. And those were, in different ways, you could say there were the seven factors of enlightenment that are kind of overlap these five spiritual faculties. Um, And so, you know, in a nutshell, faith and effort, energy, um, uh, concentration, and wisdom, and uh, mindful awareness. And so I knew what I had to do was to really gather all of that strength up and to really acknowledge it and use it in my practice. So it wasn't a matter of just willy-nilly going along and, um, you know, just kind of like praying that I would be bestowed some great uh, miracle upon me where, you know, the mind would be purified or there would be this whatever enlightenment that some people call it. And I had to do it for myself. It's, it's sort of like it is a training the, the retreat from the world doesn't mean a retreat and, you know, we're just not doing anything. We're, we're really training the mind and heart to bring up these faculties and to also nourish them, to strengthen them. The first one being mindful awareness. But faith starts the whole process going. So how does that happen? Faith provides the inspiration so that we can have the intention to aspire to something greater than what we already know. Now, I want to say something more about that because usually we only want to take in something that agrees with our present knowledge. And actually, what the Dharma does is it breaks a lot of those concepts that we have about what we think, who we think we are, what we think life is, what we think you know, life or the spiritual life should uh, give us. Actually, the spiritual life opens to new ideas, new concepts, new ways of looking at life. And if we're not open to that, then we really have to check how much faith we have to be open to going beyond our habit patterns and just having everything fed to us in the niches that we already understand. We really have to understand that a lot of our old understandings are going to be broken and maybe some disappointment there. Or maybe we're too arrogant, you know, to, to take in anything new. So we have to have a lot uh, of humility in order to open to the path. It can't just be... Um, it's like one person said that this practice is 
uh, meditation is often one humiliation after another because, you know, it, it just breaks what we already know. And we're not going to be fed things that just please us all the time. This is a lot of cringing moments in on the path. You have to have a lot of courage. So faith plants the seeds of confidence that it's possible to be liberated from those very limited habit patterns and ways of viewing life that we have that have kept us in bondage. I mean, we have to understand that it hasn't worked so far. That's why we're here, and I'm still here. My path is not yet finished. So I really uh, welcome it when I can see something anew. It's hard, but um, it's really necessary. So faith steers the mind away from doubt, and it weakens it by the presence of faith. So when faith can be stronger than doubt, one can take the next step. I love, I never could find out where this saying came from. I would hear my um, senior colleagues say it all the time, Joseph Goldstein, about this. The first step depends on the last meaning that we just have the faith to know I'm going in that direction. Maybe we want to climb a mountain and we don't know what path was, is going to be revealed to us, but we're willing to take that first step. And the last step depends on the first. We won't get there if we don't take that first step. And every step is like the first step in a way. You know, sometimes we give up and it's the new first step. I love this saying by Martin Luther King Jr. Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. And that's what he had to do, you know, to get through um, really putting out his values, his very high values in life, and taking the courageous steps to um, fulfill them. And even uh, through his death, you know, there's his values still are strong for many of us in, in life. So when we're not paralyzed by doubt, we can keep taking that step, that new step. We might be paralyzed for a while, but we, we can kind of pull up our socks and continue. So I want to tell you a story about pulling up my socks, <laughs> since I just said that. Um, there was one time when I lost faith in myself. There were many times, but this one time was when it was very, very difficult. I was doing my first uh, month-long retreat with Sayadaw Upandita, and I was in a foreign country when I was doing that. Not in Burma, but another country. And... Um, I was at this place in my practice called uh, the rolling of the up the mat place, where it means that I'm done, you know, I'm going home. So I went to the teacher and I just dropped on the floor and I said, I'm sorry, I can't go on. It's really too hard for me. I really can't take the next step. It's there's so much suffering and um, I can't bear it. And basically, I was crying about it all. And I was always ready to leave. And I was so, I think at that time, 
1985, it was um, not very many times he had he had given teachings to Westerners. So I was quite emotional and a little bit hysterical. (laughs) And so I think he didn't know what to do with me. And so there was another teacher there um, from Nepal, and he was translating. He spoke English and Nepalese and Burmese. And so they were talking to one another, and they were going back and forth. And finally, the translator said something to me. And he said, um, Sedao says, Ji says that when you can't go on anymore, because I was saying, especially walking, it's very hard for me. He said, he said, when you can't go on anymore, um, just bend down and pull up your socks and begin again. <laughs> and I said, um, okay. Uh, <laughs> And I really, I thought, they don't know what to say, you know, because here's a hysterical American on the ground, and what are you going to say to this person? And uh, so that's what they said. And I, so I, but actually, I thought, okay, I'm going to, when I went there, I said, I'm going to go into this practice like I'm a trusting, I can trust these people, like I'm a trusting um you know, maybe five or six-year-old, and just follow what they say. So I did that. In my walking practice, it would be difficult, and so I'd bend down. And, you know, it gave me a little levity. I'd bend down, and I'd pull out my socks, and I'd think, well, okay, I'm a little bit better, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I did it mindfully. And, um, you know, I thought about what the teacher would say was saying, and thought, well, that's pretty odd, but okay, I'll do it, you know. And it made me it made me feel taken care of and all of that. And they trusted me. So sometimes you have to borrow somebody else's faith. So there was um, that kind of faith that I had. And actually, I when I look back, I saw I really had a heartfelt devotion to my practice. It wasn't devoted to this about what the teacher was saying or you know, any kind of outside, outer, celestial being. It was devotion to my practice, to the devotion to my aim in life, that I really wanted to be free. And I was willing to take any kind of admonition to do that. And I I just wasn't willing to kind of stand on my own, understanding, limited understanding, and I was willing to open to new understandings. So I experienced faith as devotion to my practice, not to anybody else mostly, but mostly to my own practice and what I would like to, um, what I would like to rise up to in, in my life. So like Manindra, one of our teachers, um, always said, my, my path isn't finished yet. So I feel that way about my own path. So I still have that devotion to my path. So when we have this wise devotion to our path of practice, it gives us the gift of the lessening of pride and arrogance. So I'm, this is from, also from Bhikkhu Bodhi's writing, um, 
It gives us the gift of the lessening of pride and arrogance that we, we know it all and we can't take advice from other people. So because we have the humility, we're open to learn from, uh, from every side. And I really have a lot of respect for my senior colleague, Joseph Goldstein. He says that a lot. And actually, when he's saying that, he's quoting Manindraji. There was one time when um, I was uh, hearing Joseph say something about his own practice. And um, I can't remember the story, but Manindra's response to him was, you can learn from every side. You know, you can learn from somebody on the street that you don't even know, or from, you know, how they say, out of the mouth of babes, how, to, how children can say something in, the, in their um, pristine purity of heart. They say something so wise. So you can learn from every side, not just from what is easy to hear, but a lot of times what we learn is what we learn from is what is hard to hear. So we're willing to face things in ourselves and face the obstacles and situations and circumstances of our lives and learn from that. There's gems of wisdom as we go deeply within. So on this path we experience faith in three areas in the teachings, in the teachers, and most important of all, in ourselves, in our own potential, to know for ourselves what the path is. Not to take anybody else's word for it, but to perhaps open to it and see, does this really work? So because um, this is a really important sutta I want to read to you about uh, what the Buddha said to a group of people living in India called the Kalamas. And um, they didn't know what to do because so many people were coming into their area uh, giving different teachings and they didn't know who to believe. So the Buddha came along uh, with his retinue of um, monks and nuns and he, um, he was saying, you can ask any question. So they went to him and they said, Venerable Sir, there is doubt, there is uncertainty in us concerning uh, all of these people who come and they give these teachings. Which of these, Reverend uh, Sir, speak the truth and which speak falsehood? And the Buddha replied, It is proper for you to doubt, to be uncertain. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated learning, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon reasoning, nor upon a bias toward a notion that has been pondered over over many times, nor upon another's seeming ability, nor upon the consideration, this is our teacher." Kalamas, when you yourselves know um, these things are, when you yourselves know these things are unwholesome, blamable, lead to harm and ill will, then abandon them. But when you know for yourselves that these things are wholesome, these things are not blamable, these are praised by the wise 
and when undertaken and observed, these things lead to benefit and happiness, then enter on them and abide in them. So what he's saying is really to pay attention, you know, hear the teachings, see if you can apply them, and see for yourself. Manindra would say, you know, when I'd go to him and kind of depend on him to do the practice for me, he would say, the Buddha solved his problem, now you have to solve yours. You know, he wasn't going to do it for me. So he liked to see me suffer a little bit because it was through suffering that, um, that we learn. So in other words, the Buddha is saying, when you've tested it for yourself, then you can know the way. So sometimes, um, you know, there was a lot of testing taking place and I didn't know the way and I had to borrow the faith from my teachers. So there's three kinds of faith. There's blind faith, you know, and you can just kind of see where you land in all this or maybe where you're, you've come from in your past. When you're not yet trusting when we're not yet trusting our own experience because we don't really know it. This is blind faith. It's when we kind of can, we're, we can um, believe others so easily because we don't know our own experience. We haven't explored the inner terrain deeply and honestly enough to know our own experience. So we tend to believe what others say and we misplaced our trust in others because it's very easy to hear something beautiful and just agree with it, rather than testing it out for ourselves. So then there's bright faith, when a person or place or reading or something we hear inspires us and kind of lights the flame of possibility for us. And this is what um, the connection with Deepama in my life had. Uh, Deepama was a woman who practiced to the degree that Manindra was her teacher and relative, and Manindra would proudly say of her that she per- she surpassed me. She surpassed Manindra in her abilities, and he was very happy about that because he her mind was just full of love and wisdom. And I didn't know her personally, but I heard so many stories directly from Manindra. Uh, about her. And unfortunately, I didn't have um, the karma to, to be around her. She was about to come and stay with me on Maui, but um, she died before then. And so when we have that bright faith, it begins to have um, a, an effect of this very clear devotion to our practice when we have the bright faith because it opens that flame of faith in ourselves. And then we practice, and then we have this verified faith, because we practice and we know for ourselves, this leads to suffering, this other path leads to the end of suffering. And so we know clearly which path to take. We can respect the value of what we hear from others, what we read, but we test it for ourselves. This is that we have the wisdom to test it. So we have this um, faith that, as a, as a Bhikkhu Bodhi says, uh, quoting him again, greed, greed does not let go of what is harmful, 
but faith does not let go of that which is beneficial. So it really knows, uh, this faith really knows what's beneficial, and it goes in, uh, on that path. So this is faith, and I wanted to take a little more time with that because um, it's what's needed a lot on, on this path. If you can take that next step, even after giving up, then you, you have faith. The second factor um, which faith leads into is energy or effort. And it's not so much this physical exertion, though it's also part of that. We have to have physical exertion. But it's more continuity of awareness. It's really simple to to understand, but it's hard to live out. So when I first started the practice, um, when I went to one of um, the first retreats I went to with Manindraji, uh, I did I did a nine day retreat and I went home and I had the good fortune to take care of him when at that time when he came to Maui to um, offer some dharma and offer a retreat and so he asked me do you sit every day and I had three children uh, I, yeah three not four yet I can't remember anymore but. He said, do you practice every day? Do you sit every day? And I had to be truthful. I said, no, I don't have time to sit every day. You know, I've got a lot to do. And, but, it, you know, I had time to go to this retreat, which did me good. And so he said, what do you do every day? And I said, mostly I wash the dishes. <laughs> and so actually he took me to the sink and he stood right beside me. And he said, okay, now I want you to start washing the dishes and I'm going to give you some instructions. So he talked to me at that time as if we were under the Bodhi tree in India, you know, where the area where the Buddha uh, attained enlightenment. And he, he gave me instructions about how to wash the dishes mindfully. And then, um, I won't go through that in detail, but then he took me to, he said, what else do you do? Where do you walk in this house? And I said, mostly I go up and down this hall to get from bedroom to bedroom to the dining room and into the kitchen. So he took me to the threshold of the bedroom that I walked from, back and forth from, and we stood there and then he said, okay, now we'll walk together. And we just walked down the hallway and he said, now in this hallway, you just do stepping, 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 just realize that only that is happening. It will refresh your mind, it will give you some calmness, it will really help you to just develop mindfulness in a general way every day. So I did that for a while before I went to my next retreat. And it was, when I went into that retreat, it was seamless. It was like, it was so easy because that's the main practice I was doing. I was, in general activities, I was able to just walk through, do the being present with the walking or the eating or whatever it was, going to the bathroom. And um, then when doing the sitting meditation, very, very seamless. So it was really um, not as difficult for me to have that continuity of awareness. And it really gave profound... um, 
feeling of being taken care of in the Dharma in a deep way. So really encourage that. So this effort or energy needs to be sustainable, gentle, persevering effort. And we keep telling, talk about that every day. So I just um, would like that too. Um, you can take that in, in, in our instructions and in, in the ways we respond to you in your interviews. So this is that gentle, persevering effort that we need to have. Continuity. It's the secret to the whole practice, really. It seems so simple. It's not easy to do. But it's possible for us to do that. When Utejaniya, uh, another one of our teachers, was asked, how do you understand effort, or virya, uh, also translated as energy, He said, it's a spiritual faculty of patience and perseverance. So we know, too, that this effort um, contains this, or it's associated with patience and perseverance. And um, he said that, don't wear out your mind or body by striving forcefully when you meditate. Understanding can't develop when your mind or body is tired through striving. So something to remember about that, about effort and energy. And so we've gone through faith and effort and energy, and now just a bit about the third uh, quality of mindful awareness. Now Deborah uh, filled that out um, a couple of days ago quite fully, and so I won't go into that too much but just to say about that that it is uh, in the simplest sense uh, this word in Pali that describes mindful awareness is uh, sati and that means I'm pretty sure Deborah had talked about to remember or to what is it to remember not the past or not kind of um you know, ruminating about what could happen in the future, but it's to be aware of the present moment because that's where the secret and the deepening understanding about the truth of life is revealed. It's not about pondering over what somebody said or what you might do in the future, but it's really how we're directing you is to be with your moment-to-moment experience because that's what reveals the the profound liberation that happens uh, eventually in our practice. So faith and effort and energy, mindful awareness. And the fourth faculty is concentration. So this kind of concentration that we're developing here is in relation to our insight practice or vipassana practice. Um, Utejani would often call it stability of mind. So it's when we bring mindful awareness to uh, every moment's experience. And in that mindful awareness, that's, uh, that has continuity one moment after the next, after the next, even on changing objects, the stability of mind comes together and we realize there is stability because 
uh, the mind is more stabilized in the awareness rather than in the object of awareness. Awareness is also coming and going. It's also changing. And the ability to um, recognize that it's sustainable gives us this stability of mind. That we can, um, mindful awareness can arise with every object, passes away with every object. And when the energy is stabilized in the awareness itself, that deep stability of mind is developed. So more of that you'll hear about uh, during our instructions and if you pay attention and apply the instructions to your practice. So what happens that is that uh, light of um, awareness uh, or concentration on changing objects uh, really helps. Uh, the changing objects have a lot to do with the six sense doors, hearing, seeing, smelling, uh, touching, and um, that's the five sense doors and the sense door of the mind. And when we bring uh, that moment-to-moment concentration there, it's sort of like a beam of really um, laser-like beam that begins to see through the illusion of solidity. And some of you today have even said in your practice that can see that the changing changeability of everything and the solidity that we thought that there was in in all of life in this body is being seen differently. So this opens up a new view of life and uh, the deepening experience of impermanence at the moment-to-moment level begins to be revealed. And so this is the 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 factor of wisdom which starts to be opened through this kind of laser-like beam moment-to-moment on the uh, experiences that are arising and passing away. So this understanding of what we call in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddha's teachings was transmitted in and recorded in, you maybe have heard already of this word anicca, um, or maybe you're just beginning to hear that. You'll hear this a lot in reference to impermanence, the impermanence of every moment. So it, it begins to get really, really profound and deep where it's not only noticing that things change, but in the moment there's a noticing of its arising or its changing nature in the middle of it, and it's disappearing at the end. So the mind begins to see the, uh, those things at different phases of the process of insight. And it brings about this realization of the unreliability of life to produce any lasting satisfaction. So this is what dukkha means, the unreliability of life to bring lasting satisfaction. So it doesn't mean that there is no satisfaction at all. There's momentary satisfaction, joy, happiness, pleasure that is uh, known and really taken in, and it's not to be denied, but it's also known to, we know and understand it uh, to be, it's not lasting, so we can't hold really hold on to that. And we begin to live in alignment 
with that understanding. So less and less we're holding on to things that we want to last. We understand deeply that, okay, let's appreciate this while it's here, um, see the preciousness of life, and understand that it can slip through our fingers at any time. So we understand that more and more deeply as we go along in life and in our practice. And then there's a deepening experience of impermanence that sees a present moment and sees through, through that present moment, which seemed to be pretty solid, it sees it as kind of ephemeral. And kind, it, it pierces through the illusion of solidity. And it starts to see the, what we call the anatta characteristic or the not-self characteristic of every moment. And this can seem really foreign to your understanding, but just taking it in, and not don't try to twist your mind to understand it, but basically, if you un- can understand that if things are impermanent and ephemeral, then when the experience of the body comes up and you, you stop, stop seeing it as kind of this whole body, but start seeing every moment that happens in the physical body, com- kind of coming to being, changing and disappearing, and every moment of the mental realm to uh, appear, to change and to disappear, then really start seeing and understanding the not-self characteristic. Like where is there an eternalized solid self can't find it anywhere now you might take that for like yeah I don't believe that because haven't experienced yet but if you go through the practice as it is um, laid out really start to see what this body mind continuum is made up of and what are the universal characteristics of it and so this is what the the trajectory of the practice goes towards. So it uncovers these profound realizations, what we call the universal characteristics of anicca, of dukkha, and anatta, which um, we'll continue to fill out in the course of our time here together. So sometimes we can, it can be a shaky opening to this, but sometimes it can eventually be very freeing. I remember when I was in one of my um, long practices, I'm a mother, you know, in this relative relational plane of existence. I know I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother. This is Kamala. This is how I relate to different people in the world. This is my relationship to them. There is a sense of self. But in the practice there comes to be this kind of understanding on a deeper level of what that sense of self is made up of. Now, when I was going through a certain period of practice, my children were all small, and um, and they were growing up, but they weren't out of the house yet. And um, the first thing I said when I came to the, some, the first realization of not-selfness was I went to the teacher 
and I was a little bit uh, shaken up. And he asked me basically, what's going on? What's happening? Why? And I said, um, the mother that I thought I was is not a mother. It was that sense of that, that concept of mother broke apart for me. And it really shook me up at that moment. You know, just seeing what made up this concept of self. Of course, I was still a mother to my children on that relative level. But on the ultimate level, there was this beginning to see that uh, relative level, what that is made up of. What are the component parts of this sense of self? And that's where the, the practice, the trajectory of this practice is taking us to. And we start living in more in alignment with how things are. So we really still understand the preciousness of this sense of relative self, relational self, sense of self in the world. That is held with a lot of noble respect. That is never like shut, shun aside. But we also begin to understand this ultimate uh, understanding of what makes it up. And um, we live with both of those mutually um, sustaining uh, each other, those understandings. So this liberating understanding is the faculty of wisdom. And in this process of insight, this understanding comes in gradual stages. It uproots greed, hatred, and delusion in all of its manifestations. This is the, the aim of the path. It really liberates the mind from uh, views that have kept us in bondage. It results in uh, being able to live in greater harmony with ourselves, with all of life. And uh, we pay close attention and respect to the laws of cause and effect, to karma. There was one time, um, it was during that time about kind of breaking the concept of self and this strong sense of, you know, mother that I was identified with, that in, at the end of the, um, this kind of um, um, deep and radical change in my understanding of life, I went to the teacher and he asked, um, what are you going to do now? And what, what are you going to do with your life now? And I said, I'm going to pay closer attention to karma, to the laws of cause and effect. Why? Because I don't want to harm another and I don't want to harm my own karmic stream by living out unwholesome speech and behavior. And so a closer attention to the precepts of non-harming become really, really important to one's life. So you can see that in coming to some, some deep understanding, not, not that it was like the ultimate liberation for my, my life, um, one becomes a better human being. It, it doesn't mean that we walk beyond and start, you know, kind of floating on a cloud means we have our feet on the earth and we really understand how to walk uh, this path. 
So as Utejaniya says, wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful and clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. So recently, um, when he was on Maui, um, and um, he was offering a teaching as a benefit retreat, he told me this. It was really interesting the way he put it. He said, if a person has a lot of concentration and he looks or she or they look like a good uh, meditator, one cannot really know if they have wisdom. But if their sila is questionable, then you know they don't have much wisdom. So even a great teacher looks at one's sila you know, not as not kind of how long you can sit or how concentrated you are, but it looks at their sila means your ability to stay uh, within the precepts, to really honor the precepts of non-harming, not harming through your speech, through your behavior. Because when the mind is liberated to some degree, one is really concerned about harming one another through speech and behavior. So as pairs, we, we really need to balance out faith and wisdom, each other, so we have the capacity for devotion to our path and comprehension to understand what leads to the end of suffering. We have um, some sense of knowing what the balance is between energy and concentration so that we can become balanced in our being able to put active, gentle, persevering energy into our practice and yet have that seclusion of mind and have that stillness of mind also. So all of the above make mindful awareness more powerful and more reliable in our lives. So I'd like to end with, uh, again, one of uh, my teachers, a nun from, Germ- uh, nun from Germany, Aya Kema, maybe some of you know of her. Um, and she said, One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties, capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. So these are the five faculties, spiritual faculties, and I offer them for your contemplation, and may they be of benefit to your practice. So let's sit for a moment.
So thank you for your kind attention. So some time now for walking and then joining in the last sitting, um, if you have the energy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.